For the last 25 years, economists and strategists at JP Morgan Asset Management have published an annual long-term outlook entitled Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions. We'll be releasing our 2021 version of this outlook this month. And I'm honored to be joined today on our podcast by John Bilton, Managing Director in a Multi-Asset Solutions Group and, among his many other titles, Editor-in-Chief of the Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions. Thank you for joining us, John, and welcome to Insights Now. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So diving right in, John, I know that you and I and many others uh, in JP Morgan Asset Management have been working all year on our long-term capital market assumptions. Uh, but can you give our listeners uh, some background on the program itself? Yeah, absolutely happy to. Well, this is our 25th anniversary year, so it's a, it's a bit of a notable event. Um, and this has been uh, obviously something that we at JP Morgan Asset Management have been proud of for quite some time now. Um, it's really the culmination of getting on for 9,000 hours a year worth of research input from across our business lines with a you know, team of 30 to 40 people typically involved in giving up a little bit of their time to really look at where do we see the world going, the economy going over the next 10 to 15 years? What are the key themes and issues that are going to drive both economic growth, inflation, monetary and economic policy, and then obviously ultimately asset returns as well. Now the reason it's so important to us is of course we're privileged to run a large book of business of multi-asset money and portfolio construction and asset allocation for us is an incredibly important line of business. And so as a result, the long-term capital market assumptions help us to think about the fair run rate of all of the assets in the portfolios. And from doing so, it starts to inform our portfolio managers as how they should be thinking about their strategic asset allocation over the longer term. And that's really a crucial thing, David, as you know, uh, to use a very British expression, we eat our own cooking. So all of the numbers that we put together in the long-term capital market assumptions, of course, actually go into the work that we do for looking after our clients' funds and ultimately start to drive a lot of the decisions that we think are important in allocating that money effectively. And so what we're typically looking to do is we're now covering over 200 asset classes, 16 different currencies, and we're really looking to understand what issues we should, as investors, as financial analysts, be thinking about as we're trying to make decisions that will affect you know, the long-term direction of our portfolios. In this our 25th year, I think you'd probably agree that it's been one of the most challenging years in terms of starting a forecast because we've never really seen in modern history a year quite like 2020 because of the pandemic. How's the pandemic affected the whole forecasting process and our forecast from here? Well, isn't it something, David? And let's, let's, let's hope for very many reasons we don't see another year like 2020, but it really has been a year of superlatives. But I think that the one thing that we should focus on is when we go through very violent near-term events in economies, actually, it makes a lot of sense to look at the long term. And in fact, what's rather interesting this year is that we haven't had to move our long-term numbers around very much. Now, why is that? You know, we see the news wires telling us about massive upheaval across economies related to COVID. Uh, we, we see issues affecting everything from labor markets through the services industry, through the global trade. Yet, so how can it be that our growth numbers haven't changed? Well, simply this, we use a very simple model of the economy. 
it's a supply side model and we simply look at um, the labour force, so you know the uh, population growth, we look at productivity and we look at policy rates. Think about it this way, how many people are there working? Do they have a tool to work with? Do they know how to use that tool? And have they invented any better ways of using it? And that comes together with population, capital deepening, labour skills and total factor productivity. That's it. Sounds like a very simple recipe, but when you look at this, although this has been a massive effect in the short run from the pandemic, what it hasn't done is really take away from those identities. So we still have a similar size labour force. We still have those same expectations around capital deepening, labour deepening and total factor productivity. So the numbers remain roughly as they were. In fact, one thing I would argue though is that we have actually seen numbers tick up slightly. Now why is that? Well simply put, we're starting from quite a depressed level economically and what that means is we can apply something of a cyclical catch-up. And so in fact, even after a year like this, we actually see our baseline economic growth numbers tick up ever so such a little bit. So that's the background to it. Now, where it does have a big effect, of course, is on asset returns. And the reason for that is what we've seen over the course of this year, simply unprecedented policy responses, monetary policy, but also fiscal policy. And what that's done is it's depressed down bond yields. It's taken interest rates to zero and likely to stay there for a very long time. But what it's also done is boosted equity markets back up. We've had the shortest and sharpest recession in history. Yet at the time we're recording this, the S&P 500 is up on the year. It's extraordinary when we think about it. And what that means is that the two anchor assets, stocks and bonds in our portfolios, actually the returns on those going forward are going to be relatively low. So even though we see growth being stable over the next 10 to 15 years, there's not much to earn on fixed income, on bonds at least, and on stocks, you know, the starting valuations are surprisingly high coming straight out of a recession. So we can be optimistic about the future when it comes to economic growth, but we're going to have to work quite hard to generate returns because of the starting point of asset markets. And I, I know I was uh, working uh, with the team on the economic forecast, and one of the things that struck me is the importance of the fact that these forecasts technically start on September 30th, as opposed to, for example, March 30th. Because we initially we looked at we saw this enormous recession, very sharp, very short, and you'd think you'd get a big cyclical bonus. You think you'd have a lot of building back up to do, but we realized two things. One is by September 30th, we're going to have a big bounce back in GDP um, uh, throughout the world, really, not back to where we were before the pandemic, but certainly a significant recovery from the from the second quarter. And then second of all, if we look at the fourth quarter of 2019, before all this happened, it was really the best of all worlds from a, a economic perspective. And when we look forward, you know, we don't predict the best of all worlds, we don't predict the worst of all worlds, we predict something in the middle. And when you make adjustments for that, that, that you know, the future is not going to be, certainly not as bad, of course, as it, as it was in 2020, but not quite as good on average as it was at the end of 2019, that gets you to a much smaller cyclical bonus. So it's been interesting making those adjustments and then, as you say, looking at, at the uh, asset prices and what they've done this year and how that affects the long-term outlook. But of course, it's changed so many things uh, in the long run. I think I completely agree with you. You have to look at a short-term event here and think about how does it affect things. And one of the things that 
is clearly as affected as this whole theme of a policy response. Yes, we've seen a significant policy response, but it looks, you know, in contrast to what happened in the last decade, this looks like it's much more of a policy response being led by fiscal stimulus and fiscal policy. How does that affect uh, our, our outlook in the long run? Profoundly, I think, in a word. I mean, let's look back. We did have a massive V-shaped recession recovery, as you, as you rightly said, David. And part of that was because I think the Fed had learned from last time out, as had other central banks, and they knew full well they went, they went through the drill back in 2008, 2009. They knew how to respond to a liquidity crisis. And my goodness, they did. Uh, they came in very rapidly. But what we saw that was hugely different, of course, was the massive fiscal response. Now, let's take a step back. Let's look at the last cycle and then the one that we're now potentially going into. <clears throat> in the last cycle, um, we had massive monetary stimulus. And David, I'm going to obviously flag for the purpose of those listening your paper from last year in the LTCMA's 24th edition, highlighting the failure of monetary stimulus. You know, effectively arguing that we'd reached a point where monetary stimulus on its own had done all the work it could do. And it wasn't generating inflation. It wasn't necessarily boosting growth in the way perhaps that it had. And that was really the story of the 2010s. Huge monetary stimulus, hugely easy policy, but oftentimes fiscal policy pulling in the opposite direction. You know, we heard about austerity programs all around Europe, and then obviously um, you know, quite a lot of emphasis on reducing budget deficits and similar. Um, when we look at today, we've now broken the taboo of fiscal stimulus. And in the next decade, for prolonged periods, and certainly as we're seeing today, we're going to have fiscal and monetary pushing in the same direction. And that creates a couple of really important features. First and foremost, the ability to actually boost end demand at the same time that we're making capital available. Now, one of the issues that we saw in the last cycle was the emphasis on monetary stimulus potentially meant that we were adding to the savings glut rather than necessarily seeing money move outwards in or capital move outwards into the wider economy. And as a result, that kind of pegged inflation back. It pegged price inflation back. Now, as we look forward, stimulating the demand side of the economy, which governments are now doing, potentially creates a situation where the inflationary risks are much more even. To be clear, we're not expecting inflation to be you know, much above policy rates. In fact, certainly early in our um, forecast, we think it will stay relatively low. And it's for that reason that our forecasts on where bond yields go are still fairly modest. But we do think that the risks are much more even than they were in the last cycle. Moreover, I think it's quite interesting because in, by the time we get towards the middle part of our forecast horizon, potentially with a little bit more um, stimulus from fiscal, relatively easy monetary policy, we could see a world where eventually we get a little bit of a steepening of yield curves and more of an emphasis on nominal growth in the middle to end part of our forecast horizon. And potentially that allows for a change of leadership. If we look at the 2010s, the MSCI US actually delivered around 190% total return. Technology led that, 333% return. Europe, in dollars, 24% return. So the reality is, we can actually see it writ large, just how much that favoured assets which have got a high growth, high quality kind of a footprint. But as we look forward, 
potentially in a world where fiscal stimulus is boosting growth in other regions relative to the US, and also where we see more two-sided inflation risk, the ability of the rest of the world to catch up with the US in the 2020s is certainly there, but also look at equity styles. Potentially, a decade of underperformance of value could actually even up somewhat more because value styles potentially would be supported by a world which sees a little bit more demand-side stimulus as well as the monetary stimulus that we got used to in the 2010s. So if we put it all together, the beginning of fiscal stimulus alongside monetary stimulus is a game-changer, in our view, for the economic fabric that underpins the assumptions that we make in the LTCMAs. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, for years we've been sort of underwhelmed by the impact of monetary policy on the global economy. And I, one of the things I think we that really came out of our research is that when you put them both working the same direction, fiscal policy combined with monetary policy can be very powerful for good or evil. I mean, it is a powerful force, um, but of course it could easily be you could do too much. You could uh, you could invest in the wrong things so there there are it needs to be handled with care but i think it will have a very powerful and we we you know that's one of our findings is that it will have a, a profound influence on um economic growth and asset class returns uh, over the next decade um one of the other long-term themes and it, it is so important to focus long-term for long-term investors is climate change i mean that that is, is an increasing issue not just because the climate is changing and getting hotter with, with all the implications of that but also because of the way policymakers are responding to it how has climate change and the response to climate change affecting our forecasts well again i think you know it it's an issue that can't be and shouldn't be ignored by anyone um and indeed in in some regions i'm thinking about my home region here in europe it's becoming a incredibly important feature in how assets are actually allocated and how capital is deployed but to take a step back, um, one of the things that we looked at uh, over the past couple of years, uh, noting in previous editions of the LTCMAs that we were kind of towards the end of what was a very long cycle. Remember, David, you calling it uh, something of an aged tortoise um, at that stage. Um, I'm not sure what it is now. It's certainly not a spring hare, but uh, you know, we're obviously somewhere new. But even then, we were saying that there are issues that transcend cycles and climate change is absolutely one of them i mean simply put if i look at you know the the type of issues that are affecting us here on most of the data that's available uh, what's rather interesting if i look at my lifetime i'm 49 years old um we've actually seen three quarters of all global carbon dioxide and carbon emissions have taken place in my lifetime compared with the last 300 years. And that's absolutely staggering when we think about it. And if you look at the notion of carbon budgeting, we've got until the early 2030s before it is believed that we will see some irreparable changes. So is this an economic issue? Absolutely, it's becoming an economic issue. And the reason is that we have to respond to it. We need to move a little bit beyond just thinking about um, sort of ESG investing, but thinking a little bit more about what does this mean economically? Now, of course, the issue with climate change is it's a complex problem. It's a problem which involves externalities. It's one which actually means that we have to see a lot more coordination and cooperation across governments, which sometimes in recent years can seem to be something which is difficult to come by. But what's the incentive in the longer run? Well, simply put, we think that the investment in climate technology 
actually will be a long-term boost to the economy. It will accrue very slowly and in aggregate terms, but ultimately what you're essentially doing is investing in efficiency and more efficient infrastructure. Now, of course, there will be winners and losers, and the paper that our colleagues have written, that uh, Jennifer Wu and Casper Seeger have, have written this year, which I think is very, very to the point on this, it recognises that while there is a gain to be had in aggregate economic terms, it will come slowly and it will have winners and losers, and therefore there's a lot of planning involved in, in looking at this. Decarbonisation will clearly affect oil producing nations, it will clearly be a benefit over the fullness of time to those nations which are price takers in the energy markets, much of Europe, Japan, places like that. But it requires spending and investment to get there. And this is where it becomes a very interesting um, topic when we think about the beginning of this new cycle and we think about the fact that we've got fiscal stimulus in play as well. Because in many regions, to get over that issue of externalities, to get over that issue of needing to have you know, large-scale national investment taking place, this is something where we can see in some regions, in Europe, Japan in particular, possibly the UK also, that actually the fiscal dollars that get made available can find their way in a um, you know, socially and uh, politically acceptable way into climate change projects, into greening of the economy. So we think it's something that potentially has a good um, symbiosis with the fiscal policy, which is also being eased up. Now, what does it mean in terms of investments? Well, we think ultimately it's something that will probably near term be relatively uh, inflationary in a, in a, a, at the margin, because ultimately what it's essentially doing is bringing in new technology, it's requiring new investment, it's requiring spending from governments, potentially it's pushing up the costs in the near term, but over the longer run, as efficiencies creep in, we would expect it actually to have a more neutral, possibly even dampening effect. So ultimately it works well in that regard. I think when it comes to equity sectors, clearly it doesn't um, play particularly well for the old um, you know, carbon-heavy energy sectors, and it does play well for those sectors which are looking at more renewables, more, you know, more, more green technology, green energy, etc. So I think that the winners and losers are going to be key, uh, but understanding how it fits within the broader fabric is important, but it's very, very difficult to treat climate change in isolation without spending some time to look at how fiscal stimulus in some places may ultimately be an enabler of this. And that potentially, David, goes back and addresses some of your uh, comments, which are that you know, fiscal stimulus can be misspent, it can be misallocated, and potentially well-directed climate change initiatives could be a way of avoiding some of those pitfalls of you know, directing fiscal dollars into the wrong place. I, I think it's, it's such an important point because one of the problems with climate change is it is an inconvenient truth. And the inconvenience comes from the fact that people see a lot of the costs in dealing with it, but not the benefits. And both in terms of stimulating global economies out of the current slump due to the pandemic, uh, but also, you know, dealing with the challenge and the productivity enhancement you get from uh, from companies and governments really uh, focusing on a challenge that has always been a spur to productivity um, in history. And I think it, it certainly could play that role going forward. So uh, it certainly will be one of the things shaping uh, our outlook. So just pulling it back to, to the, the, the big picture here, um, looking at our, uh, our forecasts and particularly thinking about them relative to last year, what are we thinking now in terms of long term growth and inflation? Well, 
As we mentioned at the beginning, they haven't wildly changed from last year. In fact, if we look at them you know, side by side, there's the developed markets are perhaps a little bit better, maybe 0.1 to 0.2 in general percentage points better in terms of growth. We're seeing global growth coming in around 2.4%, developed markets doing around 1.6%, emerging doing about 3.9%. Um, but I think what's really interesting is the complexion of it. And in the main, the increase that we're seeing is simply coming from starting point. Remember, although this has been a profound crisis that we've all lived through this year, and we continue to have to work through uh, both as an economy and a society, um, what we haven't seen change is our labor force or our ability to um, create a productive economy. And as a result, the slightly lower starting point that we're seeing is something that actually boosts those numbers a little bit. When it comes to inflation, actually developed markets pretty much as they were. So we're seeing uh, developed market inflation coming in at around 1.6%, which is the same as it was last year. And emerging markets also unchanged at 3.3% to give global as 2.2%. Now, Within developed markets, the one thing that we should emphasize, and we spoke about this when we talked about fiscal stimulus, the tail risks around inflation are much more even today. So although the point estimate has stayed the same, the, the actual distribution of risks around inflation, if anything, has moved slightly rightwards. So the probability of a undershoot or an overshoot is much more even than it was in the past. And across the emerging markets, by and large, we're pretty much as we were. One thing that we have noted over the past few years is an increasing effectiveness and focus from emerging market central banks on fighting inflation. And so actually that allowed us to hold inflation relatively low in our expectations for emerging markets in aggregate, um, even though we've just come through what has been a very deep global crisis. So bottom line is somewhat better economic growth, slightly better economic growth, really because of um, an easier starting point because of pandemic recession, but potentially more volatility or more uncertainty around inflation because we've got this fiscal and monetary policy working together. And that that is very powerful for good or evil. But if it's us, if the long term, if starting point is helping you and helping us in terms of economic growth, starting point may actually be hurting us a bit in terms of asset class returns. Uh, so where do we see the uh, returns from asset classes going forward? Yeah, and, and David, as, as mentioned earlier on, it, you know, take the two major asset classes that we start everything from, which is stocks and government bonds, and yeah, both are down. There's, there's, there's no two ways about it. Um, if we look at the longer end of the US market, you know, we look at the 10-year point in the US curve, for instance, we're expecting a return of about 1.6%. We look at the long bond index in US dollars, 0.3%. What's effectively telling you is that you know there's very little to gain over the long haul from owning government bonds today. And the reason is yields are so low to start with. And we think that bond investors for the next you know few years will probably be okay because the Fed is likely to hold interest rates relatively low and inflation doesn't start to pick up its risks until the middle part of our horizon. But once we get the impact of fiscal stimulus and we get more towards the middle of a cycle, then the risk that we see yields rise towards our equilibrium levels, which are around 3% on the 10-year point in the US curve, you know, 
that means that there will be a period of reckoning when bond investors will take some, um, some impact there. And that's going to be a time which bond investors will have to work through very carefully. In the further out years of our forecast, then there's coupon to clip once again. But over the full 10 to 15 year horizon, it means that in all of the major currencies, dollars, euros, sterling and yen, the nominal returns on bonds are positive in the main, but the real returns are negative for all maturities. Now, when it comes to stocks, we're expecting a little over 4% from US large cap. And, you know, that's one of the lowest readings that we've ever seen. But bearing in mind, we're starting from a point where valuations at the moment are relatively elevated. Yeah, we feel confident that we'll see earnings growth come through, that we'll see reasonable dividend uh, returns, that we will see buyback programs continue, and there will be um, you know, money to make from holding equity, but it's going to be much harder to do. And indeed, when we look across the equity complex, it's areas outside of the US where we're getting much of the return potentially coming through. You know, if we look more broadly around the globe, you know, places like Europe giving us you know, a little over 5%, places like emerging markets giving us around uh, a little over 6% in terms of returns means that we're getting more return from outside of the US. Partly that's a currency issue, but it's also a valuation and starting point issue as, as well. Remember, I called the 2010s the American decade, and the problem with that is that if we're looking forward, you've already banked a lot of the gains. And so it may be the case that we need to look more globally to find our returns. Credit looks pretty good in the main. Uh, in general, we've, you know, high yield credit still just a little bit below 5% return in terms uh, of, of what we're expecting for the next 10 to 15 years. But investment grade credit, although it's a market that we think is um, you know, a very important part of portfolios, don't expect the returns to be particularly big there because, again, it's quite a long duration instrument. And those very low government bond yields you know, actually have a part to play in holding investment grade returns down. So where do we look? Well, there are some bright spots outside as we look at alternatives. Real assets have held up surprisingly well. Now, I know it might be controversial to actually look at real estate today and say, you know what, the returns there look not too bad. Um, you know, coming in in the upper fives to low six percent kind of range. And I know that people will push back on that, arguing that now that we've seen the pandemic, you know, demand for office space might not be as great as it was. And that's all true. And we've known the issue with things like retail malls for some time. But at the same time, we're seeing huge uplift in demand for multifamily property. We're seeing uplift in demand for industrial infill. We're seeing big uplift for demand in everything from logistics through to communications towers, things that support this change of the way that we're working. And also new areas we've added this year, things like global core transportation offer really quite nice returns. So I think the, putting it all together, it's a world where our more traditional asset classes are struggling because of monetary policy holding down bond yields and because of valuations acting as a bit of a headwind for the equity market. But as we look beyond that, and particularly as we look at the alternatives world, there are bright spots. It just means that we as investors are going to have to be a little bit more creative, a bit more inventive, and we're going to have to look beyond just exchanging market risk for market return and actually look at what other types of risk premia we might be able to monetize. So I guess you know one of the messages is we're going to have to look for alpha. We're going to have to really focus on that because beta is not going to be as available. We really need to think deeply about alternatives and what alternatives can do to add to return. 
And you know, the, the third A here is asset allocation. I mean, we, we do need to think about how do you uh, construct portfolios and, and how uh, in this kind of environment, what do we think about what all of this means for portfolio construction going forward. So uh, how do you see that uh, in, in terms of the next 10 to 15 years? What, what adjustments should people be making in terms of portfolio construction? Well, I think the three points you raised there actually hit the nail on the head. Firstly, on the alpha point, it's the beginning of a new cycle. We have had the cards thrown in the air by the pandemic in some regards, and that often means that alpha opportunities can be greater. So certainly we're seeing that come through in things like private equity, but also you know, simply in terms of public equity markets and thinking internationally, looking for alpha is key. I think that the, the next point that you raise, which is thinking about asset allocation, you know, this means actually being a bit more active and exploring where, where there are pockets of the portfolio that we're not monetizing. For instance, if you have a long-term portfolio, it probably needs less liquidity in it. And as a result, it makes sense to monetize some of that using less liquid assets, whether it be alternatives, whether it be real estate, etc. You know, portfolios which have got a liability running against them, so where you're trying to match between assets and liabilities, you know, managing your hedge ratios more actively. Again, these are kind of small marginal changes, which means that asset allocation can actually work in your favor rather than taking a static and traditional 60-40 view of the world, something that for several years now in the long-term capital market assumptions we've been arguing is probably coming to the end of its useful benchmarking. But as we look forward, the other point is alternatives. And I think that that's a crucial thing. Our colleagues in the LTCMAs from the alternatives business, led by Pulkit Sharma this year, of course, have written a paper which they've entitled From Alternative to Essential. And I think that that sentiment is very, very well made. What it means is that you know, we should be looking for where we can think about these assets um, as being part of a normal portfolio. They're traditionally seen as being backwaters in the um, asset market, but they're absolutely not. The real estate market, the real assets market, the private equity market have huge footprints and they're becoming more and more accessible with every passing year. But most importantly, what they do is they allow a portfolio to think about different elements of risk, whether it be liquidity risk, etc., that can be brought in and can be exchanged for returns. And we're used to exchanging market risk for market return it's time to start thinking about what other elements of risk within our portfolios we can comfortably trade off for additional return. And in a low return um, world, that's going to be very, very important. So when it comes to portfolio construction, it's really thinking more broadly. It's thinking with the end in mind. What is your portfolio looking to achieve for you? If you're looking to achieve income, for instance, but you don't need liquidity, there's much, much more to be done looking, for instance, at real estate or real assets than necessarily trying to scrape together something from government bonds, which are giving you a negative real return. If you're looking, for instance, for um, equity exposure, does it make sense to look beyond the traditional um, equity markets and think more internationally, think more actively, think about factors, sectors, styles, that kind of allocation. But most importantly, we think that it's very, very key to be thinking about scenarios these days. When we come to thinking about our investment, we're used to thinking about a risk-return frontier. We're used to optimizing for that risk-return frontier. And that's still a very powerful tool and central to any investment mindset. But in addition to that, as we enter a new world with big uncertainty around policy, around how fiscal policy in particular plays out, it's really important 
to think laterally about the scenarios, about jumping from one state of a world to another. And in doing that, asking the question, will my portfolio be as robust in an entirely different state of the world as it is in this one? And that way, you're able to understand portfolio robustness as well as portfolio returns as we think about the asset mix that we need to hold for the next 10 years. Well, thank you so much, John. First of all, thank you very much for, for the opportunity to work with you and your colleagues on the long-term capital market assumptions. And thank you for joining us on Insights Now. Thank you for listening. For more information on long-term capital market assumptions, go to jpmorganassetmanagement.com to view the latest edition. And please tune in to our next episode, where I'll be joined by David Leibovitz, Global Market Strategist on our Market Insights team, to discuss energy and its role in the economy and portfolios. Please stay on for the following important disclosures. The Market Insights program provides comprehensive data and commentary on global markets without reference to products. Designed as a tool to help clients understand the markets and support investment decision-making, the program explores the implications of current economic data and changing market conditions. For the purposes of MIFID 2 the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID 2 MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or any other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risk. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at am.jpmorgan.com global privacy. This podcast is issued by the following entities. In the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In Latin America, for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities as the case may be.
In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland, and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe. In Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 1976015861586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau Financial Instruments Firm number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth. By J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-383-2080, AFSL 376919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.